0: Welcome back to the NBA Insider Podcast. My name is Aldi. Uh, I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the author of MBA Insider, How to Make the Most of Your MBA Experience. And uh, as we get ready for the uh, MBA school year, uh, career resources as well as just general career development is top of mind. Uh, first years are gotta get those internships and second years are looking for those jobs. And I'm really excited because uh, I have Austin Belsack with me today. Um, Austin is the CEO of Cultivated Culture, He's also um, uh, posts quite frequently on LinkedIn, has some really great career insights, and just has an all-around career, great career story. And the reason why I brought Austin on today is because um, career development and is really a, a muscle or a set of tools. And I think some of the tools that Austin has uh, built himself, uh, used for his own career, and then shared with thousands of people, I think are really, really valuable. And I'm, I'm really excited for him to kind of share some of those. Um, so first off, Austin, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm really glad that, uh, I was able to get you on here because I think what you talk about is really important. And I guess maybe just to start, um, maybe just give a little bit of your background and, um, I will tee this up by saying, uh, from what I've read of you, um, you were in a pretty tough spot, you know, in that first job that you had and, uh, you were able to really turn it around. So, uh, walk us through, you know, what happened there and, and how did you find your way to your next
1: career? For sure, Al. Uh, first off, you know, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and and to finally, you know, connect to where uh, we could say face to face, but, uh, yes. you know, um, as best we can with everything going on. So I appreciate you having me. But yeah, uh, I love the way that you put it. You know, there is a specific set of tools that and, and strategies and frameworks that you can implement as a job seeker. And, you know, as an MBA student, even while you're going through school to really significantly boost your chances. And so, um the way that i kind of got into this whole thing is really largely in part to having that awful first job so what happened was if we rewind back to undergrad for me i wanted to be a doctor when i started college that was my goal and i think you know for a lot of us we're sort of funneled into these tv careers if you will doctor lawyer you know finance whatever it is And it's because when we're young, you know, this question of what do you want to be when you grow up is something we're asked from the moment we can really walk and talk, right? But the answers that you're you're able to give or allowed to give, I think is a better way to put it, uh, that scope narrows as you get older, right? You know, becoming the next, uh, you know, Joe Montana or an astronaut, you know, Buzz Aldrin or whatever it is, those don't really fly when you're 20, but they did fly when you were five, right? And so we're, we're forced into this more narrow scope, but we're not really given the tools to explore. And that makes it really tough on people because you, you kind of go with what you know. So I went with this choice of doctor because it was something that was familiar to me. I knew that you could help people and make a lot of money being a doctor. You know, it made my parents really happy. It made, you know, family, friends really happy. Um, but it didn't really make me happy. Um, and I found that out quickly because I got to college and and I found a lot of other things that were uh, more interesting, mainly on the social side of things. And so I quickly failed chemistry my first semester. I failed French my second semester. And I just kind of got into this rhythm of, not really investing on the academic side of things and so I coasted through college I ended up getting out of of school with a 2.5a GPA I kept my biology degree because I had already invested so much into it at that point it wasn't worth switching and I hadn't applied or interviewed at a single job outside of the one that was kind of dropped in my lap from my roommate's dad And so I just took that job sight unseen, I interned uh, at the company, they offered me the position, I didn't think about cost of living, I didn't think about career trajectory, I didn't think about any of this other stuff. So my first week out of college in this job was a slap in the face, really, I had no idea what I was walking into the job itself was really rough. Um, I was in the operating room, uh, selling essentially medical implants. So, you know, if you know, somebody who's gotten a knee replacement or hip replacement, you know, we were selling those implants. Surgeries start at 6am. Um, and I'm sort of the backup rep. So people would call me the night before and say, Hey, can you drive out to this hospital that's 200 miles away? And can you be there by 6am? So I'm up at two, three in the morning, driving a couple hours to get there in time to prep for surgeries. And that was just, that was a really rough schedule. But on top of that, you know, my boss treated me like crap. He kept saying, you know, you don't have a future in this industry. You don't, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to do anything. You're not good enough. And on the personal side, the salary that I'd accepted just was way below what I needed. So between my rent and my car payment and insurance and all this other stuff, you know, that chewed up about 70 to 80% of my expenses or my income, And I wasn't left with, with much on top of that. And so I ended up racking up about 15,000 bucks worth of credit card debt in the first couple of months out of school. And, you know, Al, you you put it pretty well. I was, I was in a a, a rough spot for sure. And uh, I knew I had to get out. So I did the the same thing we always do when we have a problem, right? We go to our family, we go to our friends, we go to career counselors uh, for advice, same group of people. And they all told me the same thing, you know, well, you have your college degree, you should be able to get your foot in the door somewhere, just go out there and, you know, tweak your resume, apply online, rinse and repeat, it's a numbers game. And I did that. And it just didn't work. So, you know, basically, long story short, I applied to 100 places in a month, and I got zero interviews, zero offers, obviously. Uh, So I went back to them. And I said, what gives and they told me the same thing. And that should have been a red flag. But I said, "All right, I'm going to double down. And I'm going to, I'm going to apply to 200 jobs this next month. And if nothing comes out of this, I have to switch it up. And that's exactly what happened. You know, nothing came out of those next 200 jobs. So I'm in the hole, you know, 300 plus applications in the hole, nothing to show for it. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, right? Expecting a different result. And so I, I definitely felt like a crazy person at that point. And I knew I needed a different way in. And so I totally switched up my approach um, based off of one conversation that I had over coffee, um, where this guy basically told me he was an alumni of where I went to school. He was working at Uber. And he basically said, like, look, Austin, you're taking advice from all the people you've gone to for advice your whole life, but they haven't walked this path. They haven't broken into the the industry you want to break into from a non-traditional background. So you need to go find people who have and you need to learn from them. And so that's exactly what I did. And, and essentially, I made it my mission, and we can talk more about this. I made it my mission to tear apart the hiring process and understand how each phase of it worked and to understand what strategies and tactics uh, were effective and which weren't. And I essentially created my own job search and my own approach to job searching that allowed me to make the transition to landing interviews and offers at Google and Microsoft and Twitter. And so I accepted the offer at Microsoft. I've been there for five years now. I still work there full time and I do this on the side. Um, but I've taken that same system and then I've extrapolated it, you know, across now hundreds of thousands of people in the audience. And I've really been able to test it across different industries and, you know, different levels of experience. And it's been a really fun ride. So that's, that's sort of, you know, where, where I was and, and how we got to now.
0: That's great. Thanks for, for sharing that story and a, a lot to unpack there. But a couple things that, that, that stand out and I'll give you, a, give you a break for a second. One of them to me is that, um, you know, it, it took two months, but you you took the feedback and you responded. Right. And so there's this notion of, you know, you put something out there and you get some feedback and then you iterate and you move forward. Right. And so uh, it's, it's great that you were able to kind of do that and, and, and test until you figured out something that could work. Um, The second thing, and I see this a lot, is um, when we go to your point, when we do job searches or career searches, we tend to rely on the people that we know for good reason, because they're people that we trust or have come to know us. And there is a lot of value in that. Um, But there's also a lot of value in being able to branch out and to talk to people who um, are doing, to your point, are doing the things that we aspire to do. One, because they have the subject matter expertise, uh, but two, because many times the people who have surrounded us or our whole lives, um, you know, they're biased just as we are, right? And so they, they, um, and that's not a bad knock on them or anything like that. And it's not, doesn't mean you can, you should stop listening to them, but for the sake of the specific place of where you want to go, it, um, it, there needs to be a little bit of a blend of, of the old and the new. Um, and then the third thing I would say, um, and one of the things I always tell people is that um, process, not outcomes, right? And so, if to your point, and what you've been able to do is to build a good process, and you refine that process certainly over time. There was a period of time where that process, which was applying a hundred places online, didn't work, but you refined it. And once you get a good process, then the outcome will come. Then the application will convert into getting an interview, and 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 whatnot. And so, um, you know, I think for me, one of the takeaways that I have, just taking a look at some of your system, um, is the fact that. Um, once um, once you get to a point where you feel confident in, in the muscles that you've built and going through that right process, you know, the outcome will eventually come. It may not always be the one you want when you want it, or it may, you, may, you may not always get, you know, the exact interview, but like the outcome will come. And I think sometimes too, we we fool ourselves when we don't get the outcome that we want and get super disappointed um, and and think that, oh, that's a failure. And it's No, it's, it's, it's not. It's just that you take a look at the process and you figure out what worked but didn't work and you move forward. And then eventually the outcome will eventually come. Um, but, and also when you just focus on the outcome, um, you potentially lose out on, on learnings, right? It's like you, I'm sure for some of those interviews where you did really well, but didn't move forward, it had nothing to do with you. It could have been the sky was blue. It could have been the other candidate, you know, did a lot better. Right. And so um, that, that's the other thing that I, you know, kind of take away. So, a lot. Um, I thought your story, the, the backstory you gave, is really great. Um, I would love for you to kind of unpack the system a little bit. Um, so, talk a little bit about maybe some of the key uh, key components or key strategies, you know, in your in your process.
1: For sure. So, I think you hit the nail on the head, out with the the two things you mentioned around process, not outcomes, and then the the referral piece. So, it's it's really interesting, right? Because when we want a new job, you know, what's the first thing we do? Well, we go look at where our friends are working, what they're doing, you know, who do we know that can get us in the door? So so we inherently know the right thing to do, but there's this obstacle of once you exhaust your meaningful network in terms of the people that you already know, well, then that, that Avenue is shot, right? So you have to fall back to this other thing, which is applying online, which we all also know doesn't really work too well. And so it's, it's this fascinating thing to me that, We inherently know what works and what doesn't, but we go for the thing that doesn't work most of the time. And that's like not the human way. That's not natural. And I think that's why the job search process is such a frustrating, you know, arduous thing for a lot of people. But my system basically focuses on two things. So the first is that referral piece. And really what it comes down to is you can build a relationship with anyone and you can bring them into your meaningful network if you know how to do the right stuff. So when we look at the data, Applying online just has dismal success rates. So the average role gets around 300 to 350 applications. Then something called an applicant tracking system, which is a piece of software that scans your resume, kind of filters and organizes everything. Recruiters, you know, look through and they basically pick out four to six people to come in for the interview. So you're looking at a, you know, sub 2% chance of getting in the door when you apply online. And then if you look at where hires come from, Uh, Online applications really don't make up that large of a chunk of of the hiring pool or the the pool of people who get hired. Most of those people who are being hired are getting hired through referrals. So anywhere from the conservative estimates I've seen are 40%, the uh, higher end comes in around 80%, 40 to 80% of of jobs out there are being filled via referral, but only 7% of applicants are referred in. So when we sit with that data, you know, it becomes very clear that if we want to get a job and we want to be more effective and we play the odds, getting a referral is the way to go. But the problem is it's really uncomfortable for a lot of people to reach out to a stranger, right? Send them an email, try to build a relationship with them. And so the core part of my process is sort of teaching people how to do that. And you don't have to be an extrovert and you don't have to be, you know, the world's, you know, greatest relationship builder, have a natural talent for, for any of that, for this to work. Um, there are some bit, pretty basic things that that you can do and we'll talk about that. But so that's one thing is go find somebody who can influence your ability to get hired for the role that you want and build a relationship with them, add value to them. The second piece is, finding a creative way to illustrate your value outside of just a resume or a cover letter. So resumes and cover letters are another thing that that don't make a lot of sense to me because they're just such a poor way to determine capability and value, right? So when I was younger, I played soccer and every fall, you know, we'd have tryouts for the soccer team. And, you know, I didn't show up with a piece of paper that was like, hey, Austin scored, you know, four goals last year and he can kick the ball 30 yards. Like I went out and played, right. And the coach was like, yep, you're good enough. You're on the team or, you know, you're not good enough. Better luck next year. Maybe go work on, you know, X, Y, or Z. And that makes sense, but it doesn't really happen in the job search. And so I think what's frustrating is that a lot of people feel like their value isn't being recognized. And it's really hard because with a resume, we won a resume sets us up to, Basically uh, violate the the cornerstone, uh, you know, pillars of good sales, which is making your pitch about the other person, about the other entity, you know, talking about what's in it for them. A resume is all about you and your past, and then on top of that, we use this super weird resume language and jargon, right? That we don't use anywhere else in our life, and so we're sort of expected to sell ourselves in a different language uh, in a way that's not really conducive to selling. So it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So what I ended up doing and, you know, what became a core part of my process was something that I call a value validation project. And we were talking about it a little bit before we hit the record button, but essentially a value validation project or a VVP is a deliverable that you put together that allows you to essentially say, Hey, I've done some research on your company and this role. And I understand, you know, what the challenges are, what the goals are, what initiatives you're driving. And here's some ideas that I've put together. or Here's some suggestions or here is, you know, some stuff that's rooted in data. And you're essentially showing up and pitching yourself in on your terms in language that, you know, you're comfortable using. And it just gives you a lot more control over what you want to focus on and the narrative that you're driving and the value that you bring to the table. And it's also a lot easier for the people on the other side of the table to understand. So when we combine those two things, we're essentially looking at a process where we start by picking some target companies. We go find people at those companies who can influence our ability to get hired. We start reaching out with them and connecting with them and we build a relationship with them. And then we use all of the information that we gather through that process to put together some sort of value validation project. And so the goal is we get the referral, but then we also have this super valuable thing that we show up with, which is also very different from what other candidates are doing. And that can really propel us through the interview and onto the offer.
0: Yeah, I, I would love to go further on both of those things because I think, I think they're great. So let's start with the first one, um, particularly around, um, uh, to your point, uh, being able to build relationships with someone who has an influential role in the hiring process. And one of the common things I talk with MBA students about is that um, they either come from cultures where networking really isn't a thing because that's just not um, what goes on in that culture. Um, Perhaps they come from industries where it just wasn't as common to do that. And so um, I do get a lot of that um, coming from MBA students, which is perfectly understandable. And so I'm just curious, maybe if you could uh, help kind of people from these types of backgrounds kind of think about how they might be able to do this in a way That is still, it doesn't feel too awkward, but, you know, help them acclimate to it in a way that they can see the value of it and maybe perhaps um, find ways to to ease into it on their own.
1: Sure. So I think there's a big stigma around networking that it's this, it's going to a career fair and shaking hands, or it's, you know, sending out a bunch of emails sort of with your palm out, hey, here's my resume, can you help? Or... You know all these these weird, uncomfortable you know ways of engaging with folks, and that's not really what i'm I'm talking about here, so I actually prefer to not use the term networking, and I like to use the term relationship building because really what we're doing is rather than you know sending out a bunch of emails or handing out business cards or going to career fairs instead we're we're saying, okay, I want to work at Microsoft or Salesforce or whatever it is, and I want this specific role so Who is in the best position to get me into that role? And that's likely somebody who would be your manager if you were hired or somebody who would be a peer on your team. Um, And if you can go find those people and you can build relationships one-on-one with them, you're going to get a much higher chance of success than you would with those online apps. Right. And so we're creating this environment where it's really one-to-one relationship building and we can stack the odds heavily in our favor in the sense that since we're picking the person who we're building a relationship with, we can do all of the research up front. We can do it on the company. We can do it on the person. We can come up with a plan of action uh, and we can execute against that. And for me, I am naturally an introverted person. Um, I'm, I'm sitting in my closet right now as we record this, you know, hiding from the world. Totally kidding. Not about the closet. But um, basically, I, I did not want to do any of this. I only started reaching out and sending emails when my back was against the wall. I sent those 300 applications, right? And I was so frustrated. So I said, I will literally do whatever it takes. And I was so nervous sending emails. I was so nervous getting on the phone with people. And what really helped me was creating, uh, well, two things. One, creating a a structure uh, and then also sort of gamifying the experience. So, Al, you mentioned kind of process and outcomes. What I would do is I, I just A, B tested and experimented with everything. And so that allowed me to kind of personally detach. So it wasn't, you know, hey, this person didn't reply to me or this person wasn't able to help me so that is a personal rejection it was more okay this is one more point of data that i can use to make a better decision and so what i would do is i would have a spreadsheet and so with the cold outreach you know what i would do is essentially uh I would take three email templates. And so just to kind of take a step back and provide context, the way that I, when I coach somebody in the job search, I tell them, okay, let's go find 10 to 15 target companies that you really want to work for. And that's, let's go find 10 to 15 people at each of those companies. So we're looking at about 150 contacts minimum. And then we start reaching out, but 150 people gives us a pretty good sample size. So what I would do is I would basically come up with three, two to three different email templates that took a fundamentally different approach. So maybe one was your traditional, Hey, you work at Microsoft. Um, I saw there's this open role. Here's my resume. Could you pass it along? And then maybe number two is making it more about them. You know, Hey Austin, I saw, you know, I found your name while I was looking for people who made the jump from a non-traditional background to the tech you know, your transition from healthcare to Microsoft was, was really interesting. I'd love to learn more. And then maybe the third is, you, you know, a, a, an approach that's different than the first two. And then I would send all three of those emails to, let's say, 20 people each, so 60 people total. And I would look at the results. And then I would remove the one that performed the worst. And I would swap it in for another template. And then you just kind of rinse and repeat that methodology. And so that was really helpful for two reasons. One, if I didn't get a reply or I got a no, instead of taking it personally, I could put it in my spreadsheet and say, okay, great, that's a piece of data. And now I'm going to be able to make a better decision. And then on top of that, I, I was able to make a better decision because of the data, right? I, I actually had numbers behind the stuff that I was doing. And so I did that throughout the process. You know, I would, I would say, okay, I'm going to have a conversation with this person um what type of uh you know how do i want to open a conversation do i want to use plan a plan b or plan c and i would test those out and so i was constantly testing and experimenting and that really helped me get over the discomfort of talking to total strangers and reaching out to them and so i would say if this is something that's uncomfortable to you one you're not alone and this is very normal And I still get nervous when I send, you know, a cold email to somebody that I really want a response from. So that's a totally normal thing to feel. Uh, But also, you know, we've all heard the cliche, you know, the growth happens outside of your comfort zone or whatever. So, you know, yeah, taking that step and sending that email, that's where you're going to get the results. And then if we shift into the actual, you know, relationship building side of things, really what it comes down to is, um, you know, adding value and showing up for the other person first. So I think of building relationships, um, almost like a bank account. So if you want a referral and it costs you, let's say 20 social bucks or 20 social dollars, if you just try to ask for that upfront with no money deposited, you're going to withdraw your account or overdraw your account. Right. But if you make small deposits over time in the form of, you know, little bits of value or or touch points, you're slowly going to build up to that 20 bucks. And now you can make that withdrawal, so that's the way I think about it. And so rather than engaging with somebody in a way where I'm showing up and using what I call me mindset, hey, here's what I want. Here's my resume. Can you help? Uh, I show up and I make it about the other person. So I look for something in their background or are they creating content? Um, you know, maybe if, if I wanted to connect with you, Al, you know, maybe something I would do is first, you know, listen to some episodes of the podcast, and then maybe I would leave a review because I know those are valuable. Maybe I go do some research on, you know, what matters for podcasters. And then after I leave a review, I send you an email and say, hey, Al, I'm loving the episodes. I left your review. I'd love to, uh, you know, help any, any way I can. And then maybe we sort of stay in touch. And then I make the ask to get on the phone with you. Well, that's going to probably be a lot more successful. Uh, because it's genuine and it's authentic, and I'm making it about you, which is, you know, at the end of the day, what we care about is us. And so when you take this approach of let's kind of gamify the experience, and let's also make the interactions about the other people, uh, you're going to end up in a, in a place where you're building a lot of relationships, you're adding these people to your meaningful network. And you're going to you're going to generate referrals, you're going to generate outcomes from that process.
0: Yeah, no, I think, thank you for breaking that down. I think that's really great. And I think one of the um, things that I think about when, as you talk about these things are, um, number one, like it's, it's these things in and of themselves are not a thing you check off the box or check off the list and do. It's more of just a mindset and a way of a way of operating. Right. And so, and I think one of the things that I've noticed about you and some other people is uh, particularly on LinkedIn is that it's just become part, it's not like you're doing it to check a box. It's more about you're doing it um, as this is part of who you are and how you're developing yourself. Right. And so, and I think that is a really good mindset to have um, particularly for job seekers, whether or not you're in business school or not, because you know, the, um, when it becomes part of how you operate, that's when you start to kind of strengthen and just make it a, a muscle that you always do. And as the more you make it more of a muscle that you always do, I think the more you have a chance at um, being able to um, build those relationships, right? Um, and I think what comes out of that a lot of times is that um, you know you and I might do it in a certain way, but everyone finds the way that makes sense for them, right? So maybe it's not post, you know, maybe, maybe instead of commenting on LinkedIn, um, it's just following up with people offline because, you know, you, you're not someone who um, likes to, you know, be too public and stuff. That's that's OK, too. It's, it's really more about um, figuring out what, you know, the, the way in which that works for you and just making that part of how you go about it and just being uh, just being proactive with it. Um, and so I think um, because it, you know, I think you or I are probably pretty comfortable with perhaps, you know, being a little bit more vocal on LinkedIn, but it doesn't it doesn't have to be that way. And I think the other thing, um, which you which you spoke to, and I love the analogy about soccer because um, it's so true, right? Like you 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 don't you don't you know you don't show like, you don't show that you don't show up to like um like uh you don't show up to like a pickup game with your resume, right? Like you you just play like and you just show what you can do. Um, and the one thing I think that is helpful for MBA students is that they basically have um uh, you know you don't really start you know interviewing for internships. Um, until December, January, February at the earliest. So you have three months to come up with your own value validation project. Um, And you also have lots of opportunities to do that, whether it's through classes that you take, whether it's through clubs and activities that you are a part of, whether it's through events that you put on, through virtual conferences you help out with, uh, whether it's through engaging with um, alum or recent MBA grads um, through this. And so, uh, there are endless opportunities um, to be able to use your time in business school. And I know it's busy, but um, use your time in business school to build those things so that when it does come time to apply to a role um, you have something to, to talk about, to share. Um, and, and I think, I think that's also, you know, a really great thing about a value validation project is that um, it makes you interesting, right? Cause now someone wants to ask you about it, right? Like, Um, And even to the point where, you know, particularly when we're doing these virtual interviews, right, it's like, why wouldn't you just pull it up on the Zoom, like, and share your screen and be like, here's what I'm working on, or like, here's what I put together, right? Um, So I think there's, I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of opportunities there. Um, I want to join on the validation Project. Would you mind sharing maybe either uh, one that you've done, or one that you've seen other people do that really stood out, or that really caught your attention as like a wow, this is this is a really great example of this.
1: Definitely, and I just want to kind of emphasize the point that you made around the opportunities because something that I see a lot is people in school, whether you know it's formal, it's an MBA, or whether it's more informal in, in the form of a boot camp or whatever. And a core part of the curriculum in in all of those cases are projects, right? So you put together some sort of project, and a lot of times students go with something that just isn't super. I don't I don't want to say it's not valuable because it is for them to go through the exercise, but there's a way to be a lot more efficient about this. And so, to give an example, you know, I work with a lot of people who go through you know coding boot camps, and they share their capstone project with me and it's you know another version of a blackjack game or it's you know some sort of you know goofy app that does this totally random thing and that's super cool that you built that but that no no company is really looking for somebody who created a, another blackjack game right so instead how can you say you know okay I want to work for let's say Spotify so how can I take every project that comes my way and how can I make it about either Spotify or a competitor, Apple music, SoundCloud, whatever it is, or the streaming industry, music industry in general. And then if you take that mindset and every class, you know, maybe you, you take your accounting class and you're looking at Spotify's balance sheet, or maybe you take your marketing class and you're diving into a marketing project for Spotify Now, all of a sudden, you're one already kind of accruing all this knowledge that you're going to be able to leverage when you start reaching out to people at Spotify or when you get an interview at Spotify. But on top of that, you're creating a portfolio. And so you're going to have these value validation projects essentially either already created or you're going to have a really strong basis for them. And so, you know, one of the, the uh, staple ones that I really like from one of these coding boot camps. this was a data science bootcamp, but, and I I don't think that this person created it as a value validation project per se, but if they wanted to spin it up into one uh, super easy to do, and then I'll I'll give another example of, of a, of one that, that uh, I did with a client who, which ended up getting her hired, but for the data science bootcamp one, this guy did a, a Twitter sentiment analysis of airlines And so essentially what he did was, you know, one, he went and found uh, data that's publicly available in the form of tweets. Right. So a lot of people come to me after I share this idea and they're like, well, but all of this stuff is private, right? the company, I don't have that information. I'm not an employee. I can't get it. And part of a great value validation project is showing that you're creative enough to go make it happen anyways. So this person, you know, did that through tweets and basically they created a, uh, and, and the terminology here may be a little off, but they essentially created a, a script that went and pulled all of this Twitter data. They used some natural language processing to determine sentiment. And then they essentially came spit out a report that said, Hey, here's what the sentiment looks like. And so they created a deck that walked through that whole process. You know, here's our hypothesis. Here are the steps we took to get the data. Here's what resulted from that. And let's look at that on an individual uh, airline level. And so, you know, no surprise, all the airlines had super negative sentiment. Um, But you could see, okay, Southwest is a little bit different from Deltas, which is different from American Airlines. And so, you know, if this person showed up to and wanted to interview at an airline, um, you know, every company cares about their brand sentiment and they want to have a good brand sentiment. And so showing up with this data and saying, you know, I've, I've now uncovered this for you. Let's take it a step further to figure out how we could improve it. That's really valuable. But on top of that, this person also has a sort of a template that they can reuse, right? So if they wanted to get a job in the streaming industry, they could do a a tweet sentiment analysis on Spotify, SoundCloud, um, Apple music, et cetera. And if they wanted to do it in a different industry, you can just kind of plug and play companies here. And so they created a bit of a template that they could use if they wanted to. And I think that is super smart. And that's just a really good example of, you know, how you could leverage a project to create something that is really valuable to companies and can accelerate your job search. Um, So that's one example that I always like mentioning, but also I think kind of reemphasizes the point that you made, Al. In terms of the second example, um, so I had a, a student who was uh, at the University of Washington and, and she wanted a job at Microsoft. So we were looking around at, at, you know, what was available. She was eyeing marketing and this rotational program uh, for new grads was something that she set her sights on. So we said, okay, you know, everybody's applying online. Uh, they have their resume, they have their cover letter. How can we stand out? Well, let's go find a Microsoft product that could use some marketing love and at the time, this was Microsoft Teams. Um, this was pre-COVID. You know, Teams was still kind of struggling compared to Slack. And we said, okay, this looks like a good opportunity. So she went out there and she did a ton of research. She read reviews on both Slack and Teams. She went and surveyed um, Slack users and Teams users. Uh, and by reviews, I mean, like, she dug into App Store reviews and she read, like, comprehensive, like, you know, PC mag reviews, or if you will. Um, And then she went and used the products herself and she went and did a bunch of of digging on industry data and she came up with some ideas. And so essentially what she did was she teed up the deck by saying, you know, Hey, I'm going to share three ways that teams can increase their market share. And then the next slide is a picture of Satya Nadella and, you know, it has a little quote from him about Microsoft Teams and where he feels like it fits in the ecosystem. So we're already validating, you know, why this is worth investing in. And then the next slide is this quote from an article in the verge, which said, you know, Slack's challenge is getting people to pay for its service team's challenge is getting people to love using its service. So we hooked onto that and we said, okay, we're going to make the rest of this deck, you know, the theme is going to be love, like getting people to love Microsoft Teams. And so she said, okay, here are three ways to get people to, to start loving Teams. And the first was uh, one of the big things that popped up in reviews and in her research was that people just didn't know when to use it. Like, why would I send a Teams message instead of just an email and Outlook? Or why would I upload a file to Teams instead of just using uh, OneDrive or OneNote? And so one of the ideas she had was to create this sort of interactive dashboard where, you know one, you could push it out to all existing users um, and you could also make it readily available, but you could say, Hey, here are all the products we have and here are the best use cases for each. So you can increase your productivity. So that was the first one. The second one um, is is my personal favorite, but you know, how can we get people to use Teams when it's beneficial to them? So Microsoft had 155 million office users at the time. Uh, there's a lot of people who are already using Microsoft's products. How can we get them to use Teams? Well, what if we put it in front of them when it makes sense? So I don't know if, you know, people are out, out there making slide decks these these days um, who are listening, but one of the most frustrating things for me is when I make a slide deck and it's like, it's too big to email. It's so annoying, So what if PowerPoint was smart enough to say, hey, I'm bigger than 20 megabytes, so you can't email me, but why don't you click this link to send me through Teams? And then maybe I send my deck to you, Al, and you type back in Teams, hey, thanks for sending this. I'll take a look. And then maybe you see on slide 10, there's a, a typo. Hey, Austin, on slide 10, there's a typo. Well, now all of a sudden, we're having a conversation in Teams.
0: Yeah. And that was
1: all facilitated because I had a pain point and Teams showed up to solve that pain point. So that was I- idea number two. And then idea number three was around improving the mobile experience. But I think, you know, the first two examples kind of illustrate what we're talking about. And anyways, that became the focal point of her interviews and that, you know, she went on to get the offer. But a big reason was because everybody else is competing on the same stuff. Resumes, cover letters. Here's what I did in my internship. And she just showed up and said, look, I know that you have a lot of people who want this role. Let me show you why I'm the best candidate.
0: That's great. And a couple things I I love about that. Number one, um, if you have a target list of companies anyway, you're probably going to be having to do company research. And so this is really just you know, an extension of, of what you're already doing. And this is particularly true if you're, you know, looking at industries like tech or CPG where they have readily available products that you can take a look at or evaluate, or in some cases buy and use. Um, Mm -hmm. So in particular for those of you who are looking at marketing, product marketing, brand management, product management, things like that. If you are, you should absolutely be doing this no matter, no matter what. Um, because if you're, you're not, I mean, chances are, they're going to ask you in an interview, you know, tell us what you think about the product or tell us what you think about, you know, the messaging on the website or, or things like that. So like table stakes for your own company research, you should be doing this. The other thing I like about it though, is that, you know, hypothetically speaking, whatever you're doing your value validation project on you're interested in that field, right? You're, you you want to be a product manager, you want to be a marketer or like whatever it is. And so in many ways, it's also a good validation project for you to, you know, if it's something you, if you start doing it and you really, really enjoy it, well, that's a really great sign. Right. And I think we all have had that feeling when we've worked on something that we really, really enjoy. Right. Like we don't, like, we don't want to stop doing it. Like we want to keep doing it. And I think that also feeds into the effort that you kind of put into it as well as, you know, when you get stuck on something, you're going to go research it and look it up, or you're going to ask someone else for some help or insight. And all that feeds um, kind of your own exploration of, you know, is this the career that I, that I, or the path that I, that I want to go in? And so in addition to, I think, helping you stand out in a career process, I think it also just helps with your own kind of exploration yourself. Um, and also building um, some, some skills and some, you know, you know, reps and sets, right. Particularly for those of you in business school who are switching to a new field. Um, the more reps and sets you can get, uh, the better you're going to be um, on day one. So I, I think those are a bunch of things from, from this that I kind of took away as to, in addition to helping you stand out uh, can also be, you know, kind of side benefits to participating in one of these. Um, one other thing I want to touch on, because I, I, I see you active on LinkedIn all the time. Um, you know, you're pretty active. And, you know, part of this obviously is because it's part of what you do in your job. But I'm just curious, um, you know, what, um, how do you think MBA students can um, use LinkedIn to kind of, you know, build themselves or build their, uh, I hate, I hate saying build your brand and build your network, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. And like I, the caveat here is like, I would love to kind of hear your perspective on this, you know, fully acknowledging, as we said before, some people are super excited about doing something like this, whereas some people are just kind of like, oh, this is not really my thing, but I'm just curious if you have some thoughts as to, you know, for, you know, those types of ever, any, anyone on that spectrum, like, you know, what might they be able to do that might help them as they navigate their career search and career process,
1: Yeah. So I think there's three layers here and uh, starting with your level of, you know, willingness to put yourself out there. So first and foremost, that something that anybody and everybody can and should do is just optimize your profile. So, you know, getting a, a great profile picture, investing in a profile picture is so huge. And, you know, if you're an MBA student, you can probably get one for, you know, in a, in a non COVID world, you can go to that school's art department, go find some photography majors or whatever it is and, and have them, you know, see if, see if they'll be up to take a couple of shots for you. Um, or you could just find somebody who has a portrait mode, you know, on their camera phone and, and take a couple of shots that way. But then people should check out a site called photofeeler.com and you upload your picture to photofeeler and you'll actually get uh, rated by other people out there for different traits. So likability, influence, uh, integrity, things like that. And they'll basically, you know, say, Hey, based on this picture, you, you know, I think you're in an eight out of 10 on, on the, uh, you know, likability scale or whatever it is. And then they'll actually give you some written feedback. So they may say, you know, I like your smile, but the background's a little busy or whatever it is. So I always recommend, you know, go out and take two to three different pictures and upload them and see which one people like the best. And then maybe go take two or three more pictures in the same vein of the one that people liked best and and just keep iterating until you get a a high score. And that's really going to be a big deal because your profile pictures is so important. So the University of York did a study um, a little while back now, but results still hold true. They wanted to know, you know, what happens when we look at an image. So they basically found that we only need a 33 millisecond glance at an image to form a first impression of somebody. And the interesting findings on top of that initial finding were that one, the first impression does not change with a longer view time. So that's pretty much an instinctual, you know, thing that happens, and it sticks around, you know, even after you continue to look at the picture. And then second, they found that new information uh, about that person was kind of influenced by that first impression. So everything else they read on your LinkedIn profile is going to be influenced by that first impression that they formed from seeing your picture. Now is that a good thing? Probably not. Uh, especially, you know, in the world that we live in, you know, unconscious bias is a thing. Uh, conscious bias is a thing. And that that is unfortunate. But the profile picture is on your LinkedIn profile. It is what it is. If you want to win the game, you have to play the game. So, upping your, your profile picture, uh, taking it to the next level is a huge thing that you can do. And it doesn't take a lot of time. Um, and then just going out there and figuring out what keywords, you know, map to the roles that you want. So what I recommend doing is, uh, going to a site called resimatch.io. Um, so selfishly, that's one of, one of our tools, but, uh, basically what you can do on resimatch is you can choose, there's three scan options. If you choose the job description scanner, um, you can leave that open, you go back to LinkedIn and you just look look for jobs the same way you would search for any role. And every time you find a job description you like, copy the description, paste it into the resume box and rinse and repeat for like 10 or 20 job descriptions, and then hit scan. And what's gonna happen is resimatch is gonna show you all of the hard and soft skills that that show up most frequently across these roles. And so by including them in your profile, in your headline, in your about section, you know, you're boosting your chances of showing up in recruiter searches for those types of roles. And that's going to allow you to generate some opportunities passively. You know, you don't have to be an active participant to, to capitalize on that. Um, we could spend, you know, an entire episode yeah. talking about profile optimization, but um, I have a whole guide on the site too, and and I can send it over to you Al, if you want. But then the next tier is, is getting out there and engaging in terms of comments and likes and reshares and stuff like that. So, you know, one of the big aspects of the platform is that connection and that engagement. And really, you know, you can optimize your profile, but there are only so many people searching for the role that you're going after in a given day in a given month and so you're kind of capped there and there's a lot of competition right there are millions of product managers there are millions of sales there are millions of software engineers so standing out is really tough but one of the best ways that you can kind of generate or manufacture some views on your own is just get out there and start commenting on people's stuff this is also a great way to start building relationships as well so it's not quite as intense as creating your own content um and you can sort of comment on, on engage with posts that are meaningful to you and are exciting to you and you want to talk about. Um, but two things are going to happen when you comment on a post. One, you're going to get recognized by the post author in most cases, especially if you show up on their stuff consistently. And that's really valuable because you can start building a relationship with the person who posted that thing but then on top of that you're going to be seen by everybody else who's viewing their posts in most cases. And so if you go look at, you know, somebody's post analytics. So if you go look at my post analytics what ends up happening is all of the people or most of the views come from that person's network, right? And their network is going to mostly be people who are in the same industry. So if they're a software engineer, they're probably going to be connected to a lot of other software engineers. If they're a product manager, probably connected to a lot of other product managers. And so all these other people who are in that you know target field that you're hoping to get into are seeing this post and then maybe seeing your comment on it as well. So there's sort of a... a we're double dipping a little bit with, with comments and, and you don't just want to say, you know, great post or love this or whatever. You actually want to leave something thoughtful, but then the third tier um, for the people who are so inclined is actually creating your own content. And that can be sort of intimidating. And especially for a lot of students, they say, well, what do I talk about? You know, what do I say? And honestly, you know, one of the easiest places to start, there's sort of two routes you can take. One is to go to other people in your class professors, friends, whatever it is, and just ask them, you know, hey, what do you think I'm really strong at? You know, what would you come to me for advice on? And see what they say. Um, And then on on top of that, and and I guess, you know, to continue that thread, sorry – you, uh, whatever they say they'd come to you for advice on, you know, you start creating some content around that. So what, what, even the small things, like how do you go about this process or what's your, what's your framework for doing X or Y. And and, and that can be a good place to start creating content. Number two is just taking people with you on the journey. So I know a lot of folks who, uh, you know, will talk about the stuff that they're doing. So we mentioned, you know, okay, you have this class project on marketing, you want to work at Spotify. So we're going to make it about Spotify. Well, what if you documented your process? So you wrote a post that says, okay, you know, in class this week, we were assigned this project. And you know, my goal is to work at Spotify when I graduate, maybe you tag Spotify in the post. And then you say, you know, here is what I'm thinking of doing. And here are the steps that I'm going to take. And then maybe the next week, you say, okay, I took steps one, two, and three, Well, one turned out to be a disaster, but two and three really worked well. And so now you're bringing people along with you in the journey and you're helping, you know, how many other MBA students are are hoping to know what other people are doing, what they're struggling with, you know, what their process is, you know, so many of them. And now you're sort of that hub of information. So that can be a really, really good thing to do as well. And that's going to sort of give you some thought leadership in in, at least, you know, with other MBAs, but you're also going to get a lot of respect from other people. Um, and so I would say on LinkedIn, those are sort of the three stages for, uh, you know, hopefully you're doing all three. That's, you know, the ideal, uh, you know, money maker where the magic happens, if you will. But again, to your point, I like not everybody is super comfortable doing all that. So at the very minimum, I would say getting out there and fully optimizing your profile is probably the best thing that that you can do and that everybody should be doing. Yeah,
0: no, I think I love the three, the three stages of it. Those are absolutely things all MBAs can do. Um, and eva- or at least evaluate and then do to their comfort level. So um, Austin, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, if people want to learn more about you or check out some of the resources that you mentioned, where where should they go? Where can they where can they find you?
1: Definitely. The the website's the easiest place, so cultivatedculture.com. Um if you type in the search bar LinkedIn profile tips, um, that whole optimization guide will come up. Resimatch.io was the other tool that I mentioned. Um, and then you can find me on LinkedIn. So, you know, if- feel free to connect with me, follow along, um, send a, send a little note and mention you heard the podcast and I'll, I'll be sure to accept. Um, but yeah, those are the easiest spots. And Al, I really, really appreciate you having me, man. It was, it was a blast. Um, and this podcast is awesome. So huge kudos to you for everything you put together. Great.
0: Hi everyone, LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA insider podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.